Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Risk with Dr. Naveen Agarwal. Each week we talk about a topic related to risk management of medical devices in a very casual and informal way. This is not a webinar or lecture, rather our goal is to talk about key topics and challenges in a very informal way and share best practices. I'm your host Naveen Agarwal and I'm the principal and founder at Achieve where my personal mission is to help you achieve success in risk management. My guest in this episode is Daniel Roberts. We are talking about the connectivity between risk management and design controls in a typical medical device safety risk management process. Now Daniel has years of experience both in quality management as well as technology management in R&D groups. So he's the best person to talk about how best to connect these two processes and what kind of challenges we face in practice. We had this conversation in front of a live audience as part of our weekly LinkedIn Live Let's Talk Risk Conversation series. You're about to hear a recording of our conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So with that, today I'm so excited to welcome Daniel Roberts. Uh, so he has a lot of experience in the medical device industry, and now he is out on his own as a consultant. But we'll have a lot of conversation today about uh, the interface between risk management and design control. This is one area where I think uh, practitioners struggle in our industry. It is not easy. It's quite challenging. So it'll be amazing to hear uh, Daniel's thoughts on this and maybe some best practices. But once again, I will invite you to participate in this conversation with your own comments and thoughts later on. So with that, Daniel, I want to welcome you. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Naveen. Very, uh, very excited to, to be here and excited to um, have the invite to talk to your, your uh, group here. That's awesome. So, uh, Daniel, why don't you start with just a brief introduction about you, uh, let our audience know uh, some of the key aspects of your experiences. Sure. So um, going back uh, after college, I was actually in the Navy for a few years after college, flying flying some aircraft, and it was, uh, and it was an intel officer in the Navy that uh, as well too, but then I left and I uh, I left and I got my undergrad in biomedical engineering. So I'm, I thought I might as well use the degree. So I got a job at Stryker, uh, and so for the first few years I was at Stryker and did kind of all things regulatory and quality from MDRs, complaints, CAPA, uh, internal audit, supplier controls, and then moved more into the um, the uh, advanced quality engineering side, the design quality, being on the design team, focusing on risk management um, within that that realm as well. And there I moved over to uh, Pentax Medical, Japanese company um, based here, well, based in Japan, but with their home office here in North Jersey, which is where I'm based. Uh, I was there for a little while and then moved over to BD, uh, Beckton Dickinson, also just down the road from, from where I live. And my most recent role there was um, the global process owner for design control. So BD has been doing work to harmonize the quality system. So we did a lot of work within one of the bigger businesses and medication delivery solutions, then try to take some of that work and apply it to the the global um, processes as well. But if you were here last week, Mark Armstrong's also been involved in a lot of that, that work too. So that was my some of my uh, connection with him from yeah. last week. That's awesome. So uh, I think your, your background is a little bit interesting and I didn't know much about that before. But it seems to me that you came to the medical industry with a very good practical understanding of risk. I mean, you were in high risk environment, high risk situations, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So I, w I was just curious, like as you entered the medical device industry, uh, in what way did it help you to kind of transition into this role, which, you know, honestly speaking, tends to be very compliance focused. 
So what yeah. was what was your experience like as you transitioned into yeah. this industry? No, it's good. Good question, Naveen. So um, one thing about Striker is Striker is very, um, if you're familiar with it, they've got a certain hiring way and they like to hire a lot of type A personalities and a lot of former military officers fall into that. So there's a good chunk of former military who work at Striker. So that was kind of a little bit easier on the transition. And actually, my my first VP there was a former uh, Navy SEAL type. So mm-hmm. um, we could we could make fun of each other uh, around that stuff. Nice. So you, you, you kind of had the environment and people were looking at things you know, in a very similar way, and you were able to transition properly in that environment. Is is what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, I was able to transition. I wouldn't say it happened overnight, uh, but uh, yeah, going into the the corporate world from the the military world was a little bit different, but not anything uh, too outrageous. The biggest difference I didn't have to call everyone "sir" to me, sir. <laughs> yes, but I got over that quickly. Oh yeah, that's okay. That's great. So, uh, Daniel, we're going to talk about the the interface between risk management and design control, and you have so much experience in this area. So. I, I would just like to start by asking you, you know, where do people struggle the most when they try to connect risk management with design control? I mean, I think a lot of the big struggle, which I'm sure a lot of you have seen, is the, um, uh, you know, some of these things are kind of done in, in different silos and not necessarily done together from a design input side and a risk side and, and figuring out where, where it goes together. Where really, you know, you really need to have the teams sit together and, you know, if the quality folks are in, in charge of the risk side, they need to sit with the design folks who really understand how the, the design and the risk and the design and the risk work together. Mm-hmm. Or really from a design input perspective, you know, you're, you're identifying the, the functionality of the device uh, within your design inputs, but those need to transfer directly over to your risk to understand, um, you know, if you're looking at a functional analysis, if you're looking at the specific risk lines, doing a top-down or a bottom-up approach, you need to connect those things together uh, so that way it's kind of clear uh, how these things work together and make sure that you're really actually uh, looking at the risk correctly. Yeah, so again, you bring up the collaboration theme once again, and I think we have heard that over and over again these, in these uh, LTR conversations, collaboration matters. And it's true that you know a lot of times our quality regulatory colleagues are involved in the risk side, whereas engineers are working on the product development side. And it's the connectivity between the two that has to start first, right? Uh, so that's a very good point. Now, having said that, so if that's the situation, we'll talk more about some of the practical tips on how to connect risk with design control. But having said that, where do you think are the are the barriers to that collaboration, especially between quality risk side and uh, engineering side? Yeah, no. It's, it's sometimes it can be a physical thing. Sometimes they're just sitting in different buildings or maybe even like you know different parts of the world. So the closer that those teams can get, just from a you know, running into the hallway is helpful. Kind of having those um, those relationships is good, and just really kind of trust and integrity uh, between the two you know groups there. Because essentially, I've seen it happen where stuff happens, and one group doesn't necessarily trust the other, or they they feel like there's um, something might be you know going on that's not not the most best way of doing stuff. And mm-hmm. once you kind of lose that trust uh, between those groups, it's very very hard to get it back. So that's something. Um, that's very important. And once you, I mean, really the team shouldn't see themselves as two different groups, you know, fighting against each other. They should see themselves as one big group working together to design, you know, a safe and effective medical product, uh, medical device for patients. Yeah, yeah. So staying focused on the overall objective and purpose, right, is important. And from a, I think this is a leadership opportunity for all of our yeah. colleagues. You know, we get so involved in the day-to-day work that we forget that there's a leadership component to what we do. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very, I mean, it's tricky from a, a quality management side because I've been on the quality management side and on the R&D management side. Um, and it, uh, you know, a lot of it comes from having good managers who can really, uh, you know, get the right messaging to their, their engineers uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, really and understand too where the different group is coming from. So, I mean, if you're a quality manager and you just want the most conservative thing possible and you just kind of say no to everything, then essentially R&D is going to stop coming to you and asking you for questions. Not because you're not getting the right, um, you know, the answers that they want, but it's really having a, a more, you know, open discussion and understanding, you know, how the product works and what really is best for, you know, customers and the business at the end of the day. Yeah. And on the other side, if we keep uh, from from the quality management perspective, if we keep hearing from our R&D colleagues that, hey, uh, we know what we're doing, leave us alone. Uh, there's no yeah. need to document this. There's no need to follow yeah. this. We, we, have, we got all under control and we'll talk to you when you know we have to do something when we're done so so that i think this kind of a a communication will always uh, be a problem in collaboration and we have to be mindful and i think one of the things that i want to highlight here we we talked about uh, the role of empathy in one of our conversations you know how as leaders whether we are in the r&d management or in quality management or risk side as leaders we have to empathize with our colleagues across different functions so we know what their challenges are and help communicate that. So uh, with that, uh, I wanted to ask you, Daniel, if you can share with us a good example of where you have seen a a nice tight integration between risk and design, both on the input side and on the output side. You're talking about from like a team perspective? No, just from a technical side. Now, if you can give an example so people can understand how this whole process, these two processes could work together uh, on the input side as well as on the output side. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, one thing that's always tricky in any design work you do is the reliability numbers that are associated generally with design verification testing. There's always a, uh, it's always a, a fun discussion on what the reliability numbers should be. Oftentimes you'll see companies, you know, you have uh, a, a matrix that says, hey, if your risk for this design verification test is high, then you want to use 99%. If reliability is medium, 95%, if it's low, mm-hmm. 90 or something like that. So generally there's a sliding scale. So to say, hey, the riskier that the product is, you know, the higher reliability numbers you should use for testing to make sure that the product's going to um, function correctly, mm-hmm. which makes perfect sense. I mean, it makes sense and it's, a, it's I kind of call it the easy way of doing it because it doesn't necessarily require you to think. Um, but uh, what I looked at is trying to actually kind of flip that backwards a little bit and really have the reliability, which is really a core functional characteristic of the product, mm-hmm. really should sit kind of at the design inputs and then should link directly over to, to your risk analysis. So ideally, you would you probably have a design reliability number uh, as part of your design inputs, and then it, that number should directly uh, you know come out within your DFMEA as well, because that's really a core function of how well the um, that the device functions and what it can do. As you do that, you know that number should roll up uh, into your overall occurrence rates. Um, and so there, you're kind of doing it coming from the different direction where you say, hey, this is the functionality that the device needs to have. This is how reliable that should be. You capture that in your design inputs, link it into your DFMEA, and then mm-hmm. as you roll up the overall you know, occurrence of hazard situation or occurrence of hazard, however you're managing it, that's naturally going to drive your final occurrence value for uh, the individual risks. So that way you're getting a true risk benefit mm-hmm. analysis looking at you know, how the product should be, uh, be performing. Got you. So what I'm hearing you say that it is still risk-based, it's not that it's mm-hmm. not risk-based, but it is not like a you know blind uh, following of 99, 95, 90% level reliability. It's not, it's not just like a set stage, but 
depends upon how you have done your sort of risk analysis early on and what should be the expectations from the product. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's very difficult to do because it, it does take a lot of work and a lot of thinking and going back to our previous discussion there, really collaboration between multiple functions uh, to make sure like understanding, hey, how is, how is the product going to be used? What's the functionality? What's the potential, you know, harms that could come up, come about it? And it's going to vary from product to product. When you're talking about, you know, something you make a billion of something, you know, it's a very different risk. Yeah. Uh, you know, discussion, then maybe something you're making a few hundred. Uh, and so those risk benefit analysis is going to be very different and using the same reliability, you know, expectations for both of those types of products um, really doesn't work. And also, I think this makes a lot of sense to me because what I have seen in my practice, many times we focus only on the severity level. We can say hey, if severity is high, we want 99% reliability. Mm-hmm. It's medium or low. So we are not even talking about risk. We are talking about just severity, right? So that's one point. The second point is that many times, in fact, you want high reliability even when the severity of the potential harm is low because it causes yeah. a lot of nuisance or inconvenience to our customers, is bad for our brand equity, is bad for, bad for customer experience. And by the way, that nuisance could lead to a more severe harm later on due to operational errors. Mm-hmm. So I think by following a blind recipe of severity high, reliability expectation high, severity low, reliability expectation low, we may actually forget that reliability should be considered as, you know, appropriately in the context of the overall use, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's exactly kind of what I'm what I'm getting at. And that way allows you to better, you know, understand what part of the design is important. Or if you do have, you know, there might be a case where you want a high reliability for customer satisfaction issues, um, or maybe it's low risk associated with um, whatever that, that functionality is. And so maybe you want to have that higher number, but then at some point down the line, you know, you make a design change or something, you can look at it. And if you document and you design inputs well, and they translate over to your risk well, um, you could have a good uh, way to lower that reliability number if you need to look yeah. at how the complaints are working in the field and just understanding why that reliability number exists uh, and not just you know blindly following a number because the procedure says to follow this number. Wow. So I, I think that is where the power is, the power of collaboration and conversation mm-hmm. because yeah. we, we all bring our different perspectives. It's not about blindly following a recipe or a table. Uh, we, we, we want to question what everything is and how it is. So this is, this is awesome. I, I really love the way we have uh, kind of staged this conversation today, guys. I want to inv- start inviting you all to uh, share your thoughts. And what you need to do is uh, indicate to me that you're interested in joining us. I think you have to find on the bottom right of your screen uh, some kind of, I think it's an icon that will help you raise your hand. Ed is asking us to speak, asking him to speak, so I'm going to bring him on. But guys, don't wait. Don't wait for your turn. This is not... Um, you know, it decides to go spontaneously. So, and it takes me a while to bring you on. So make sure that if you're interested, you raise your hand now and I'll bring you on the stage. So Ed, with that, I'm so glad to see you again. Uh, please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. Okay, Naveen, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you loud and clear. Very good. Uh, it's good to have you uh, with us, Daniel. And uh, Thank you. Bravo Zulu. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're, uh, you're, you're, uh, yeah. So I'm sorry. <laughs> well, uh, my condolences to you. But anyway, you. <laughs> what I wanted to, to talk about is something that, that Daniel brought up. Um, one of the most successful projects I was enter, ever involved with 
was where the company co-located everybody on the project team. We had one room. We were all in. And uh, it was the design people. I was a supplier quality person at that time. The regulatory, everybody was in the same space. And when something came up, you just turned your chair and had a conversation uh, about the problem, about the issue that we were trying to solve uh, right there at the same time. And so um, if design brought up something, the manufacturing people would say, well, we can't build that uh, because we don't have the right equipment. But if you did it this way, mm -hmm. then we could build it. So there were lots of, of, of immediate problem solving that took place in that kind of a situation. But of course, today, with uh, us uh, being located all over the world, it gets a little bit more difficult to do that. But it's still, uh, uh, you could um, arrange some uh, virtual sessions. And, and I was in a virtual session last week with the uh, Risk Management Standards Committee, uh, which met in Paris, and I was here uh, and got up at 2 a.m. to, to <laughs> attend the meeting. But anyway, um, uh, it was a very interesting session. And and I think uh, the virtual stuff has, has really uh, given us a tool that if we use it properly, um, we can we can solve a lot of problems quickly and, and um, come up with really successful designs. So thank you for your perspective, Daniel. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's a great, great point, Ed. And what I'm hearing he, here is that conversation is more important, not less. You know, we, we think Absolutely. that we think that we have so many technological tools available to us, AI or chat GPT and this and that. Uh, we need more conversation, not less. But we now have an opportunity to have an informed conversation because we can mine this information prior to coming to that. So. Uh, that's a, that's the reason why we do these Friday sessions too, by the way, guys, because it's not all about going through this standard, that requirement, or this technique or that technique. It's more about bringing all of us together for a conversation. So I hope you will participate because that's what it's all about. So Ravi, I know you have joined us. I would um, ask you to unmute your mic and share what you have in mind, please. Hi, Naveen. Hi, uh, Daniel. Can you hear me? Yes, we can yep. hear you. Go ahead. Yes. Oh, thanks you for... Uh today's conversation. Um, I, I kind of come from a background where I worked on um, startup companies that have innovative products or we don't have any precedent. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on what do you think are best practices for um, doing a risk assessment and design controls for in a situation like that where we have something that's novel and new and um, kind of starting from scratch. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good question, Robbie, because it is it is the hardest stuff. It goes back a little bit to discussion last week with Mark, where um, you know from from that point you really need to kind of sit down and I mean you don't necessarily have to have a clinician or going to be a user on the project team, but you have to have discussions with them and have them those types of discussions when you're doing your your rapid prototyping, uh, you know, early on to really get that immediate feedback to kind of understand how the product would be used, which is really setting up your framework to you know look at the risks for it uh, and understand it. So. Um, I mean, there's always a, trying to look at predicates and looking at similar products, but if you're really making something new, uh, I mean, that's why <laughs> that's why startups are very hard and startups can be uh, a bit challenging. Yeah, what, what I've tried to do in situations I've been in is even advocate for doing risk assessment pre-design controls, like in mm -hmm. the concept phase, 
Yeah. And, um, you know, that's uh, trying to bring in things from like 14 um, and 71, things like that, like the, the things you see in the technical report into that into that phase. But it's been a challenge um, uh, yeah. on the technical so, side. I know, I, I know we have Ed here on this on the stage with us, Ed, and I certainly don't want to put you on the spot, but I know you can handle it. You have so much experience. Is there something you can um, share with us that will be helpful here in this context? So I, I would love to have Christy here. Unfortunately, she's not with us because she works in startups. And uh, Christy Johnson. Uh, but anyway, um, one of the things I can think of, and, and you're right, starting in, in uh, feasibility, and especially it's required if you're going to do um, any clinical trials to have a risk analysis done before the device is exposed to customers. But where you can start is thinking about and, and um, go back to the uh, Annex A24971 questions okay. about the uh, uh, characteristics related to safety and then what standards apply. So if it's an electrical product, you know immediately that you're going to have to apply IEC 60601. And 60601 lists lots of hazards, which hazards are the beginning of your, your risk analysis. So yeah. you pick all those electrical hazards, you put those down in your risk analysis, and you start right there. So if it's going to be in body contact, you got biocompatibility, all the various things that go on uh, about, about the product um, come from that that list of, of um, safety-related characteristics, and and you can start right there yeah. and, and, uh, and put it all together. That's, so that's where I would start, Robbie. I think that is a great yeah. recommendation, Ed. And in fact, guys, uh, this is one... Uh, sort of deep dive article I have addressed this week on the Let's Talk Risk newsletter about safety characteristics. Go check it out. But in addition to what Daniel and Ed have mentioned, what I would share with you guys is that in a startup environment, of course, we are focused on what to do, right? And how it will be done. But I think we should take a step back and really understand the use environment to say why it should be done in a certain way. Are there other better ways? So that analysis of Annex A questions and getting those answered will actually help us to get to that point. Because many of those aspects you may say it's not applicable or there's a better way. So I think we, in a startup environment, I would say it's challenging to take a step back because everything has to be go, go, go very quickly because we gotta be in market first as soon as possible. But sometimes it might be worth spending a little bit of time upfront and doing that hazard analysis that Ed talks about starts with the hazards. Can you even not do something in a way that gives you more hazards, right? Just eliminate some of those hazards right up front. So design choices can be made later on appropriately. Does that make sense, guys? I, you know, I, I hope I was saying something that could make sense to you that more of a strategic conversation first, and it doesn't have to be like, uh, you know, all time consuming. But uh, uh, somehow, someone has to take a, take the step. Guys, do we really need to do it this way? Because if we did it other way, we won't have to address these hazards that we are talking about. I think that makes sense, Naveen. I, I, I would add that um, what I think I've been most successful with in that kind of conversation is focusing it more on the user process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and thinking about the process from a user perspective and a customer perspective. And that seems to resonate a lot more with the technical team and, and cross-functionally in general to, um, you know, to engage uh, the entire team to think about uh, risk assessment as a starting point. And to be able to do that, I think we'll have to get the clinical input one way or another sooner than later. And we have had at least three or four conversations this year about uh, the importance of getting clinical input. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to go hire medical clinical people on your team. You can find other ways of bringing that information up front. So uh, great conversation so far, guys. Uh, we'll, we'll keep talking about this topic. We have a few more minutes left, but uh, any, any one of you, if you have any other ideas, thoughts, questions, comments to share, please, uh, please join us. John, I will bring you on here. Hopefully it works. Go ahead, John. Please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. Good morning. Good morning. I agree with all the points uh, with development uh, and risk, more, especially on standards and developing uh, your risk analyses with that. One, one thing to just add is with your usability testing, formative analysis will greatly add to that business. That's something early in the feasibility phase and, and can get those those pre-inputs um, to help develop that, that risk package. That's a, that's a great point, John. Uh, and for those of uh, us in the audience who may not be very familiar with that, can you say a little bit more about what that means and how early is, uh, is useful from a formative usability study point of view? Right, so feasibility, uh, when you really have a, a product that's tangible is, is usually what I, I see um, as far as the formative stage mm-hmm. uh, for you testing. Um, but if you're in the characterization concept or even prior to that, um, it, it can be beneficial so you understand what you need to be designing into the product and how to address in, uh, the risks. I see. So earlier the better, right? And the the scope you can define in a way that it can be done efficiently without much cost and time. Because I think that's a, one concern people might have. Hey, John, this is a nice thing for you to say. I'm sure we'll benefit, but look, we got no time. We got to put this product out there as quickly as possible. How do you how do you encourage people to take that step, which when you know it's going to be useful to us? Right. Um, well, if you're actually out there talking to the clinicians, you could better understand those hazards. Would make it to the point to the team, whether it's R and D or or whatever functional uh, representative you're talking about. Coming from the point of the patient and what the risks are to the patient, and uh, understanding what the clinicians needs or needs are that need to be satisfied, making those points. So it's more personal and how it could affect it. Yeah. So it gives us, I think it gives us a better sort of understanding of what the user needs are, how we can get there, what might be some issues. So in fact, we develop, actually we increase our chances of success in the product development. I think that's how it, we might want to pitch it for support because a lot of people might say, look, we know what we need to do. Here's the timeline. We just got to get it done. But John, what you are saying is that maybe take a step back and help people understand why this information early on might actually help us get there faster at a lower cost, right? Yeah. So, so that's a very useful point. So Daniel, I know we are gonna run short on time. So I do have one last question for you. Uh, sure. 
Are there any tools that you can share with us that will help people improve this connectivity between risk management and design control? Yeah, thanks for the question, Naveen. So what I kind of talked about before, really linking, you know, the reliability from, you know, a design perspective and into the, the risk perspective as well. So you really need a tool to manage it because it's, it's gets can get complicated pretty quickly. Uh, and especially when you're dealing with a somewhat complex device, you need to really have a good way to manage it and track all that. So there's um, there are a lot of tools out there that can do that. Generally, most of them fall under the ALM realm or application lifecycle management, which is kind of um, really an offshoot from the software development uh, folks. But it really gets the traceability where you can manage all of your um, all of your design work from your design inputs, your design outputs, your design verification, and then your risk uh, files as well too, where you can actually you know identify your occurrence levels, identify your harms, your hazard situations, and connect them together. Because uh, that goes back to what I was talking about earlier, where really they should be one. Um, they should all be, be linked together, and there are good tools out there that can do that. Um, you know, in the past I've used Polaria, and there's other ones out there like Jira. Um, Windchill has a has an equivalent uh, ALM thing out there. So there are a bunch of tools out there. They're not cheap um as one of those things are but uh part of that going back to almost what the discussion from john was there is is you know convincing leadership hey this is something you want to spend money on because it's going to help us make better products for our customers makes products more safe and effective and make them much more sustainable when you have them in the digital tool as opposed to uh you know you know spreadsheets or physical documents gotcha gotcha so we can take advantage of some of the new tools available so guys, I'm going to actually do a quick poll right now in the audience. Uh, would you like to learn more about these tools and technologies in our future conversations in 2024? Please, uh, you know, share your, your feedback through these emojis in the React button. Let me know what kind of uh, topics would be of interest to you. Uh, okay, uh, I know, Ben, you are asking to speak, and even though we are running short on time, I'm going to bring you on because I never say no to folks who request to speak. So Ben, briefly, please unmute your mic and share what you have in mind. With that, uh, yes, go ahead. Uh, who is, yes, Ed, this you have Ed. something. Oh, go ahead, Ed, want please. To point, want to point to that comment uh, that I typed in the chat. Oh, okay. That's, that's all I, I wanted to say is the, the new QMSR is at the White House right now for approval, and that is the last step. So it will be out probably in January, if not this month. Oh, so this, of course, that's going to be a big change, right? And all of us will be impacted by that in one way or another. Yeah. So certainly we'll be uh, we'll be talking about that uh, next year. And any other topics, please, uh, you know, bring them to my attention one way or another. But we will have a listening and a feedback dedicated session early to mid-January. Uh, with that, I want to thank all of you guys and invite Daniel Benkin. If you can hear me, and uh, get a chance to unmute your mic, I still want to give you uh, an opportunity to share what you have in mind. But if not, uh, Daniel, please go ahead and, and share uh, a couple of quick comments, quick, quick uh, points that we can all take away with. Yeah, thanks, Naveen. Thanks for the, for the time, too. And, uh, you know, kind of piggyback a little bit what John kind of talked about earlier. is like, you know, to do this stuff well, you kind of start, you have to start early and you have to start often. And really understanding, you know, from the usability side, how the product's going to be, used by the actual clinicians and that can really drive a lot of your thoughts from a design perspective and a risk perspective to uh to understand what the potential you know has a situation and harms are um and so part of that is, is definitely getting in there and a lot of the work you do up front can ideally make your work on the back end um a lot easier that's often very difficult to do in practice because like Nanine was saying earlier there's a lot of push to get this stuff done and out the door um 
But to do that, you really the, the teams really have to know their processes, their procedures, and kind of what the expectations are of them to make sure that they get good, safe, and product out the door. That at the end of the day, you're working for a business that needs to sell product um, to make money, so you can have a job. And kind of understanding yes. what, yeah, yes. what you have to do to, to to get that product to make money and to to you know keep your team happy and keep uh, your customers happy. I think that is where the leadership opportunity is for all of us. Yeah. Right. That's where we have to kind of seize this opportunity and say there is a better way of doing it despite all these challenges that we face on a daily basis here's a better way and it all starts with collaboration it all starts with bringing all of us together and sharing our insights and perspectives well great guys uh thank you so much again for this uh amazing conversation daniel uh ravi ed and uh, john thanks for participating and sharing your thoughts as well what a wonderful year we have had i wish all of you guys uh a very nice holiday season. Take some time off. Enjoy time with the family or do whatever you would like to do to just relax and recharge. Uh, we look forward to connecting with you once again in 2024. Uh, there'll be plenty of opportunities for us to engage and uh, continue this conversation. With that, guys, take care, have fun, and we will see you soon. Bye-bye. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year.